Ladies and gentlemen, two corrections. I used to be dean of the faculty. Happily, I am not anymore. Uh, and those of you who didn't get in or who want some changes, no use talking to me anymore. <laughs> Secondly, I was not born in Russia. I was born in the what was then the free city of Danzig, and today is, uh, is Poland. I don't know why I'm correcting these minor inaccuracies. Let me mention another one. My name tag says education. And quite a few of you have given me sort of dirty and quizzical looks as I walk around here. I'm very envious of other name tags. Some say theoretical anthropologists, others say Nobel laureates, others say businessmen who have been successful, and I'm stuck with education. Uh, I do not like to be called an educator because usually that's a title applied to someone who has lost the respect of his disciplinary colleagues. I like to think of myself actually as a student of foreign cultures, and I wanted to say a word about that. Foreign cultures, especially of Japan, and most especially of the Japanese economy, and I strongly believe that an educated American in the, at the end of the 20th century cannot be ignorant of other cultures and other times. I also believe that educated people should achieve proficiency in foreign language and foreign culture. And I believe that the rewards of understanding other languages and cultures are enormous. Unfortunately, in our own country, we focus on these issues only during a war or when there is a threat of war, and in peacetime, we are apt to forget other cultures and languages. You know, I can illustrate what I mean by an anecdote. I always tell my friends in Washington when they go off and negotiate in East Asia that when someone from the Chinese culture area during conversation says to you, yes, he does not mean that he agrees with you. He means that he hears you. That's a very, very important distinction. But most of us have not learned that. When I came home from the Korean War, I told my professors at Harvard that I wanted to study Japan and the Japanese economy. And without exception, they thought that I was slightly crazy. That was in the early 1950s. I, I will never forget my, my, one of my major professors sort of when I told him this turned around where he had a map of the world and he found that slight sliver of land along the East Asian perimeter and he said, you want to spend your time studying that? Such an insignificant country, such a complicated language. And indeed, all of my instruction up to that point had focused only on the West, and that's probably still true of most of your instruction, on Western history, Western books, Western ideas. But I'm happy to say that today, 30-odd years later, I teach one of Harvard's largest undergraduate courses. The students have nicknamed it Rice Paddies, 
Uh, most of our courses have nicknames. For example, there's a course on the Soviet Union called, uh, taught at midday called Darkness at Noon. Um, there is another course on modern art called Spots and Dots. And, but mine is called Rice Patties, and it enrolls every year from between four and 500 students. And that, I think, is an enormous amount of progress. Here are some of the things that I have learned in a lifetime of studying other cultures and other times. In the future, and I'm now talking really about your future, there will be no single nation that occupies the position of number one, not in the economy, not in the military sphere, nor in political power. And since I firmly believe that that is true, in other words, that we will have to share power, economic, military, and other with the rest of the world, and I think that's a good thing, if that is true, this has serious implications for all of us. It means that American insularity must be brought to an end. It means that we must monitor and scan what happens in the rest of the world all the time and learn from the world when others do things better than we do. And we are not very well prepared for that, either by our education, background, or inclination. Indeed, I think it's in your generation that a very important question will be determined for our country. And the question is this. Can we reverse the current trends of our moral, industrial, economic, political life? Because I think that many of the current trends are not favorable for this country. As Pogo said, we have met the enemy, and he is us. And I think it is in your really productive lifetime that the question will be answered, will we turn this around, or will we continue what I see as our present slide? And I think if we're going to turn this around, genuine internationalization is certainly necessary, one necessary aspect of the reversal. So I would like to just say this to you. Turn your eyes to other parts of the world. Listen to what other people have to say. Speak to them, if possible, in their language, and learn from them whenever they have something to teach you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Kathy Burke, and I live in Japan. And since you are an educator and you are an expert... Ohayou gozaimasu. Ohayou gozaimasu. And since you are an educator and you are an expert in Japan, what do you feel about the integration of Japanese um, educational system techniques in the American education system? Oh, that's a very difficult question. I am not crazy about the Japanese educational system, either at the primary, secondary, or uh, tertiary level. If anything, if we have something to learn from the Japanese, it is probably in primary and secondary education. And there the lesson is mainly hard work, longer hours, more application uh, to work in school, and perhaps also hope moving towards some kind of, uh, of national standards. Uh, Japanese primary and secondary education certainly achieves higher levels 
than uh, we are able to in this country. But I would hope that we wouldn't imitate the Japanese in doing what is absolutely necessary, and that is to improve our own system of education, where I think we need our own solutions. My name is Louise Chang, and I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Um, I've read a lot of sort of criticism on the core curriculums in the sense that they, it is said that they prepare students very well in the humanities, in the sense that once you get through, you have some good background in the humanities, whereas in the sciences, the cover, coverage is rather superficial. Um, I'm wondering if you're concerned on this and whether there are any plans at Harvard to um, do something about it. Well, let me answer that question on a number of levels. First of all, it is inherent in one of the characteristics of our society today that whenever anybody does anything or takes any kind of affirmative action, uh, there is an enormous amount of criticism. I think that's one of the problems in our country. It's, we have find it very difficult to look at what other people do and to uh, grant them any degree of approval. And so it's an easy thing to say, you know, not invented here, I didn't do it, you don't do it as well as we should. That is one, that is one problem. The other thing about science, let me now say something about science. I think that general education in science is terribly important. We need to do much more of it. One of the greatest difficulties is that scientists don't want to do it. The last thing that, in my experience, science want to do, scientists want to do is to teach students who are perhaps afraid of science and who are not going to be scientists themselves. So we face great obstacles. I think that uh, not only at Harvard, but at other major universities, we have improved science instruction for undergraduates who are not going to be scientists. We're not doing nearly well enough but we're doing better than we did 10 or 15 years ago. The trend is in the right direction. The problem can only be solved by scientists themselves. I hope that they will undertake that task soon.